2: To our upside down tree. We're in a series about an upside down Christmas. And the reason for that is that when Jesus came, he literally turned the world upside down. He turned everything about the way that we think, the way we act and interact, the way we view our family. Everything about us was thrown upside down with Jesus coming. Last week, Don talked about the genealogy that's listed in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, and how scandalous it was. They, he included a prostitute. He included a foreign woman. He included the skeletons in the closet. that we Nobody wants to talk about the cattle rustler in the background, or the bank robber, or the murderer. We all want to have this nice, clean genealogy, but... That is the message of that genealogy, that Jesus came for all of us. So, throughout the, the majority of the population of the world, your genealogy, who you are, where you came from, is of supreme importance. Your genealogy determines where you live, determines what you can do, determines your place in society. It determines everything about you. And in many societies, um, you not only consult your father and your immediate family, and your grandfather if he's alive, but in a lot of the world's cultures, you consult people that died thousands of years ago in, in ancestor worship. Every decision you make is dependent on what your family thinks. So, the commandment to honor your father and mother is extremely important. You see, here in the Western culture, we are what is known as individualists. You're not the boss of me. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I can do what I want to. It's none of your business. But that's not true for the majority of the world. Everything is everybody's business, So, a friend of mine and I are currently reading a book, Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes. And it compares how the people in Eastern cultures read Scripture as compared to the way you and I read. You see, as Don says very often, Scripture was written... For us, but it was not written to us. It was written to an ancient people in an ancient society with traditions that went back for thousands of years. So, the things that are said there, we take literally for what we think it relates to us, but the truth is, we need to understand. We need to understand what it means to the people that originally heard that message. So, In this book, the author, who's done a great deal of mission work in the Middle East and and so on, he shared a story about how he was doing a Bible study one day with some people in one of the Middle Eastern countries. And when he came to Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50, which reads, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The people in the Bible study began talking in their own language, and he didn't understand what they were talking about, but they were very upset. And they were, they were just in a turmoil. And he finally got them to calm down and explain to him. And they said, we don't believe Jesus ever said that. That's a mistake. That shouldn't even be in the Bible. Because they never would have thought of saying something like that. But you see, Jesus was saying that you and I, as his followers, we are his family. We're his brothers and sisters. We, the church, are his body and bride. You see, at that point, his mother was still pondering, what's going on with this guy? I'm not sure I understand. And his brothers out thought he was crazy. So the people who were actually listening to him and believing they were his family we don't understand the significance of what is in Luke 14 verse 26 that says unless you hate your mother and father and brother and sister and even your very life you cannot be my disciple we don't understand that but picture this in that society becoming a Christian It's not like, oh, I'm going to leave the Methodist church and become a Baptist. Or I'm going to go to the Church of Christ. No, not at all. You walk into that society and tell your family, I've decided to become a Christian. What, you hate me? Do you not understand what you're doing to me? I can't go to the grocery store anymore. Nobody will speak to me. Your father won't be able to continue to work where he's been for 30 years. Your brothers won't even be able to get jobs. And who's going to want to marry your sister? You hate me. Literally. When you become a Christian in much of this world, you are literally putting yourself separated from all of your family, putting your very life in danger in many cases. So you understand why mission work in so much of the world is not only hard, it's dangerous. Well, that's what Jesus calls for in discipleship. Jesus even continued this preference for his believers from the cross when he commended his mother to his beloved disciple John instead of to his brothers James or Jude, who at that point didn't believe in him. It wasn't until after he was resurrected and they had seen and experienced the resurrected Jesus that they believed Jesus makes the statement that the world will know we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. In those societies I just described, if you become a Christian, you rely on your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't survive without them. So we're commanded to love and support that same way in the body of Christ, which means that We're not talking about just the people in this building or even in our town or county or state or nation. We're talking about people everywhere of every persuasion and color. We are a body of believers who are to support one another for the purpose of fulfilling his final commandment. To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature So this morning, let's prayerfully consider how we can more completely love his body and how we can build on that support of strength in numbers to better fulfill our stated purpose to win the world to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as your body. Please help us empower us to be united by your love as a body of believers with many and varied talents and abilities and backgrounds and help us convict us of the purpose that you've given us to not be your disciples in name only to not be comfortable sitting in our pews and satisfied with the status quo, but to be active about the work you have assigned to win others to this family so that you can can use our background and their background to win even more. As the early church turned the world upside down, may we do the same. May we be known to the world as your true disciples because of the way that we love one another and how we love the world you died to save. And we pray these things in the beautiful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.
0: Good news, bad news. Those are, let's joke telling 101, right? I mean, most of us know those. The wife comes to the husband, I got good news, I got bad news. Good news, you know, that brand new pickup you just bought, the airbags work perfectly. (laughs) The doctor gives you the good news, bad news. I got good news, I got bad news. The good news is you only have about 24 hours to live. That's the good news? What's the bad news? I've been trying to call you since yesterday. Ugh. Ah, yeah, Groans as good as a laugh to me. I don't care. But the lawyer gets in on the good news, bad news. The lawyer, lawyer looks him in the eye and says, hey, I got some good news. I got some bad news. The, the The bad news is the blood tests came back. Your blood tests came back, and you're an exact DNA match to the crime scene. He said, well, then what's the good news? Well, your cholesterol's down to 130. Uh, See, we all want the good news, and we never really want the bad news. But what happens when our bad news is turned into good news? Welcome to an upside-down Christmas. If you'll stick with us for the next couple of weeks, we're in Matthew chapter 1, if you want to start turning that way, if you're uh, joining us online or on the radio, we're looking at the first two or three chapters of the book of Matthew and the story of how he comes into to being. Now, the Christmas story, we all know, and it's very easy to tune it out. Oh, Don, I know this stuff. I'm just challenging us this year to see it from a different angle, completely flipped over. And if you do, you'll figure out that dark becomes light and foolishness becomes wisdom. If you were with us last week, the things that are out are welcomed in. And today, bad news can become good news. Join me in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place. While she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiance, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Now the first thing, keep your Bibles open. We're going to keep going through that passage and finish out the first chapter, but the first thing you're going to figure out that is, Joseph is a good man. We see in verse 19 that he's he's recognized as a good man. Um, for him, the times are good. In Jewish culture, there are three stages to marriage. The first one is Pledged Now, that says they were pledged to be married. That frequently meant an arranged marriage from parents. Now, there's not a teenage boy in America that likes the idea of arranged marriage. But most dads of daughters don't think it's that bad of an idea. I mean, most of us look at it and go, I don't know, maybe I want some input on this. And in that particular culture... While you were pledged, you could get out of it, but it led to the second one. It's called betrothal. Now, we call that engagement, but in the Jewish culture, betrothal is a legally binding time. It is, you're legally paired as husband and wife, but you do not live together. You don't have any sexual relations. Betrothal lasts for a year, and during this time, the husband was challenged to go build your life together. They would frequently go build a house. Here's how it happened: happen. Frequently, they built a house attached to their parents' house. So I'm just thinking about that. Just let you ponder that whole thing. And, and he would go build the business. And for a solid year, he was to be building all of this. Fun fact, in that culture, the wedding and all of the preparation is 100% planned, prepared, and executed by the man. The woman does not do anything on the wedding. So first of all, start thinking how cool you got off, guys. You know, you just said, I do, and and let her plan. But no, in that culture, there's no bridezilla. There's no trouble with the mother-in-law. There's none of that, because this is how culture happened. And Joseph is in this betrothal period. He's excited to get married. He's building this carpentry business. He's got goodwill in the community. He's a good man, it says. He's faithful to the law, it says in another passage. He's the kind of guy that you want your daughter to be with. He did what was right. But good times can quickly become bad times. Joseph's world was turned upside down by one phrase. She became pregnant. That's a simple statement and a simple concept, but a very complex situation. Good news can quickly become bad news. As we have stated many times, we're frequently one phone call from our knees. It was Super Bowl Sunday, 1977. The Super Bowl was held in the Rose Bowl. It was Super Bowl 11. Uh, at that time, it was the Oakland Raiders versus the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, 100,000 people were going to be there. Long before he was a commentator and a Uh, playstation game John Madden was the head coach of the Oakland Raiders Okay, he was a very well respected Hall of Fame coach and they were out there doing the warm ups and a guy named Jim Tunney was the lead ref that day Uh, very well respected in the NFL and uh, John Madden walked walked up, slapped him on the back said Jim I'm so glad you're our lead ref today Uh, I think you do a great job you are the second best ref in all of the NFL and he walks away and Jim Tunney's sitting there going that's not bad. Hall of Fame coach says, I'm saying best. But then he starts doing what all of you are doing. Well, I wonder who's the first best then. So he watches, and they're out there, you know, practicing, punting, and getting ready for the game. And it gets close to the game, and he musters up the courage, goes up to Madden and kind of elbows him. And he says, hey, you said I'm the second best? Oh, yeah, absolutely, my second favorite. Who's the first? And he said, well, that would be a tie between all 89 other refs in the NFL. (laughs) So it started out as really good news, but it went bad in a real hurry, all right? You see, the reason for this one-year betrothal, there was a specific reason for it. One year was to prove purity. For one year, they were separated. They were not allowed to be alone together so that anything that might have happened, uh, that if she comes up pregnant, it's clear that it's not his. Now, we find from, excuse me, from other scripture that Mary has gone to the Judean hill country to see her cousin Elizabeth. It's very possible she's been there for several months and joseph gets word that she's back in town hey have you seen mary no i'm at work today but as soon as i get off work i'm gonna go see her joseph you really need to see her okay You, you need to see her and with just a glance joseph's life that he planned that he prepared for that he earned is over The NIV actually says she was found to be pregnant. And what that meant, literally translated, she was visibly pregnant, okay? There was no question. She didn't put on any weight when she was visiting. It's very, very clear what has happened here. And we don't have any record that Mary tried to explain the situation. And let's be honest, who would listen? Who would believe her? A teenage girl comes up this way, as far as Joseph is concerned, Mary has done wrong. She's the bad guy. She did this wrong. And, and it, it's very easy to see what happened. Now, there's a thing that we need to know, though. In verse 19, it said, Joseph was a good man. Now, he could have publicly disgraced Mary. It was very much within his right to bring, him out and to bring her out into the city. There were Jewish tenants that would have allowed her to be stoned. That's how bad this was. He could say, "Hey, you people know I've been here for this solid year. There's no way that this this brings shame on my family. So this is all on her." He could have done that for the sake of his honor. But Joseph was a good man. I'm sure he was upset. I'm sure he was frustrated. He probably stomped around a little bit. But maybe later on that afternoon, maybe that evening, he decided, "You know what?" I'll give her some money. She can go on down the road to another town. She can start all over. She can tell any story she wants. You know, my husband was at war and got killed, blah, 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 it'd be okay. I I didn't do anything wrong, but there's no sense in humiliating her. So he goes to bed and the life he desired, the life he earned, the life he planned, gone. But while he was sleeping, he got a message that led him to a decision. Join me in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. And let's finish out this chapter. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All of this was to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. But did you hear how it started out? It says, as he considered this, an angel leads him and gives him some information and gives him a challenge. But I got a hunch his parents weren't really keen on this idea. I got an even bigger hunch that... The local rabbi did not call the two in for counseling and encourage them to make this decision. In fact, I got a hunch everybody in the community told him, this is a terrible idea. Are you losing your mind? Don't do this. Because by marrying this girl, he gave legal status to that son as his heir, as as a legal child and a son. But in doing that one thing, He lost his reputation. He lost the goodwill of the community. And I got a hunch, I really believe he probably lost probably two-thirds of his business. He was going to lose money. He was going to lose reputation. He didn't do anything wrong, but by choosing this, he lost. And this is not a one-time surrender by Joseph. This is the beginning of a lifestyle we see. In the next few chapters, three different times, an angel is going to come to him and say, You need to get up, you need to pack up, and you need to go. And every single time, Joseph does exactly as he's asked. He responds with simple, immediate obedience. Friends, we don't have to understand completely to obey immediately. I'm afraid we have lost this in our Christian culture, and certainly in our individualist culture. Well, I need to look at everything from a lot of different angles, and what's going to benefit me, and what's going to hurt me. No. If God says it, I need to obey it. I need to do exactly what he says, and I need to do it immediately. Do you think this made any sense to Joseph? Probably not. But Joseph obeyed, He did, even though it didn't make sense, and he did it immediately. It says when he woke up, he went and did it right then. There were going to be immediate consequences. He did it immediately. And Joseph is thrust into a life that was not what he expected, was not what he planned. Here's Joseph. He's asked to step into a very uncertain future, a certain future that he, or a future that he didn't order. It's scary, but he doesn't even flinch. That's why I love this quote from Craig Rochelle. Outcome is God's responsibility. Obedience is ours. We need to do what he says irrelevant of the outcome. And I think, and I've been pondering this whole Joseph thing for the last couple of weeks, I think there are people in our own church family, in our own community, that have been dealt hands that they didn't really want. They didn't order. It's not the life they chose. It's not the, the desired plan they had. We call them single parents. And there are many that battle that situation. No bride has ever walked down an aisle and said, I can't wait to be a single parent. No husband has ever said, I just can't wait to be abandoned. Nobody ever does that. Many times, these are people that had no control over the situation. The other party did something to them. The other party bailed or abandoned. It's not what they ordered. It's not what they earned. It's not what they planned for. They've had to deal with addiction. They've had to deal with abuse. You hearing me? This is not the hand they were dealt This is not the hand they wanted, but it's the hand they were dealt. What if we, as a church family, really saw single parents, really reached out, really poured into? Not that there are any other people that are more or less important. I just i am really burdened by that right now. Can we look at some people in some difficult situations and stand with them? Because I think that would be a great thing for our church to do. Most of you have read a bunch of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books, right? There's a myriad of them. I remember one story about a mom named Kayla and her three-year-old daughter named Avery. And they were at the store, and Avery was riding up in the cart, and they were doing some stuff. And mom sees on the end cap... Uh, a, cur- a coloring book that will be a great stocking stuffer for Avery and so she does what most of us parents do, she kind of shields takes it, puts it behind her back tries to slip it into the basket put some lettuce on it, do, do something to cover up, but Avery pot- spotted it, right Mom, what are you doing? Mom, what's going on? Mom, what's that, Mom? What's that, Mom? and she starts digging around, and then leave it alone, and of course, being a three-year-old, she somehow got her hand on it, pulled it out, yay, and Mom grabs it back and says, Avery, I was gonna give this to you at Christmas. And her response stunned the mom. She said, Mom, I have so many gifts under the tree. I don't need this for Christmas. And the mom was just moved, almost to tears. Her three year old's getting it. She's really getting this concept of generosity and love till Little Avery grabs the magazine and says, I don't need it for Christmas. I need it right now. (laughs) And I laugh, but how many times are you and I, Avery? How many times are you and I, that right there, going, I don't want it. I want it now. You see, the reason Jesus came to our earth was because we have this nature in us that is bent towards selfishness and rebellion. That is in our nature, to want me first, to want what I want, I want the way I want it. Now, Scripture will tell us the wages of sin is death. He came because our sin was going to keep us away from him in heaven. He didn't want that. That's why he came. And when Joseph was challenged to name him, that's usually the dad gets to name the son whatever he wants to. And this angel said, name him Jesus In his name was also his mission, for he will save his people from their sins. His name was his mission. We need Christmas to turn our world upside down so that we see things differently. John said it this way in 1 John chapter 4. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God but that he loves us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Now, I don't know how he did this, but I think somehow Joseph figured this out. We see in verse 19, Joseph is a good man, but somehow in his brain, he figured out being a good man isn't good enough. And some of you need to hear that. Some of you are still operating on a theology that says God saves good people, and I just need to be good, and that's just good enough. I love you, but you're wrong. That is a flawed theology. If that was the case, if that was a case that you could be good enough, there'd be no need for a cross. There'd be no need for a... A manger. There'd be no need for any of this stuff. Go be good. Read a be, do yourself better book from Barnes and Noble, and we'll just be done with all this. But that's not how it was. He came because our sin separated us. And Christmas says that the God who is above is with us. In verse 23, it says, Emmanuel, God with us. Most of you know Max Lucado and and some of his great stories and how he's an incredible writer and speaker. Not very long after 9-11, he was invited to the White House by the president at that time, George W. Bush, along with 30 other ministers. They were having a prayer breakfast to kind of get the nation back on right track after the horrible events there. And so they were all gathered in this one room and he's, he says he's feeling very overwhelmed. They, I shouldn't be here, you know. And W. walks in the room. And he comes in the room and he starts shaking hands. And it's it's a really cool moment. Now, some of you may already know this, but if you didn't, George W. Bush was raised in Midland, Texas, just about three and a half hours from here. Max Lucado was born and raised in Andrews, Texas. which was about 45 minutes from there. Okay, so uh, the, the, there's some connection. And so the president gets around to him and he starts doing the shake. And, he's, and he gets to Max and he says, Mr. President, I'm from Andrews, Texas. And most of you know how Max writes. And it's very colorful. And it's beautiful. And he says, well, the president stood up a little straighter. His drawl may have gotten a little more pronounced. And a smile and a grin came on his face when he says, I know your town, I've walked your streets, I've even played your golf course. And Max Lucado finishes it with this statement, the most powerful man in the world has been in my neighborhood. And most of you have already made the metaphoric jump there. The promise of Christmas is that the most powerful person ever, God is with us, even in the bad news. In the ER, when you're scared and you don't know what to do and you're overwhelmed, God is with us. At the funeral home, when you're overwhelmed and scared and confused about what the next steps are, God is with us. When the divorce papers are delivered, when you hurt so bad you're not sure you can take another step, God is with us in the waiting room to the jail when you're questioning your parenting skills and where did we go wrong god is with us you see god with us doesn't mean we won't have troubles it means that when we get bad news he understands don't answer this out loud but have you ever been betrayed by a friend have you ever been abandoned by a loved one you ever been misunderstood You ever had anybody say something about you that wasn't true? You see, if that's you today, maybe you just walked in here, maybe you just tuned in. I don't know why. And you're sitting here and you think nobody understands. I want you to get this. God is with you. Still with you. Always with you. Our God has walked that street. Our God has been in your neighborhood. As Franklin was saying earlier... Good news is not the absence of crisis. It's the presence of God. God with us, come to save us. Your grace sets us free. That's good news. You see, Joseph had his life planned out. Hey, we're going to get married. We're going to have a bunch of kids. We're going to get involved in the local synagogue. I'm going to be the soccer coach. We're going to have this little construction business. Everything's going to work out great. And obedience cost Joseph the future he had planned. It cost him everything. But what it gave him was he was a part of a bigger plan. Christmas is to remind us how upside down his kingdom really is. You're never going to find peace with God if the world is your source of satisfaction. If you keep looking to the world to find peace, to find joy, to find happiness, you're not going to get there. And I don't mean this to be mean, and I'm not saying this about you. I'm just saying don't be shocked when you don't handle things well. When pain happens because you're trying to find your answers out there. When the doctor says there's a spot on the x-ray. When the email says your job is not going to continue when the person that you loved hands you divorce papers. You want to hear the most upside-down statement in all of history? It comes in Matthew chapter 16. Whoever wants to find their life, got to lose it. And whoever loses their life for Jesus will find it. Christmas is asking us to do that again. Anew, upside-down. Against the counsel of everybody that he knew, Joseph decided to lose his life. And you know what I, I found? I I don't know. Maybe you can help me out. We have no record of Joseph ever even talking. Him explaining why he did what he did. And you know what else we don't I don't see any record that Joseph ever had his choices validated. He he everything I see is he was dead before Jesus was Elevated For his ministry, we see that Mary was at the crucifixion. We don't see Joseph there. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. But I don't see any choices that show he was validated. So there's a grand possibility he went to the grave with everybody thinking he made a bad choice. He went to the grave with everybody looking at him. Yeah, but you know what you did. We all know what you did. Friends, some people may think you have made bad choices. Maybe you think you've made bad choices. Hear this and hear this good. His good news is better than your bad news or your bad choices. One more story I want to finish up with. And this is one of my favorite Christmas stories ever. Uh, it came in Guidepost Magazine 1966 called Wallace Perling and the Christmas Pageant. Wallace uh, was a little boy, uh, was slow of body and mind. And it was 1966, he probably had learning disabilities, he was probably challenged. Uh, he was nine years old, he was in, still in second grade. And you know kids can be cruel, and they'll use that R word, that we don't like using that word, and and probably said things about him. He wasn't chosen first, he wasn't uh, wasn't exciting, but... He really wanted to be in the pageant, the Christmas play. Teacher was really torn because, man, what do I do? Because he might forget the lines, he might mess everything up. So she made him the innkeeper. One line: the inn is full. To say the inn is full—that's all you got to do. The inn is full. So he was all fired up. And the night came, and bathrobe Jesus and Joseph and Mary come walking down, you know, and Joseph knocks. We, we need a place to stay. Wallace stands up. The inn is full. But, sir, we're, we're tired. We've traveled a long way. We really need to rest. The inn is full. But, sir, my, my wife, she's, she's pregnant. And we're about to have a baby. And a very long, awkward pause happened. So long and so awkward that the teacher was off to the side prompting and saying, Tell him, be gone. The inn is full. He thought for a minute and he says, be gone, the inn is full. And so Joseph and Mary start to walk away. And the crowd said that day they watched and they saw Wallace standing in that doorway. His brow kind of furrowed a little bit, tears welling up in his eyes. And he stopped he says, Joseph, Mary, wait, don't go. You can stay in my room. <laughs> Some would say that he ruined the pageant, but most said that was the best Christmas pageant of all time. You see, he came for you, for me, for all of mankind. And it should change how we view everything. He came to change the bad news that we face every day and turn it into good news. Uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to turn on the news and see bad news, right? There's tons of it out there. But he has given us hope. He is the Prince of Peace. And I pray that you get that today. He has come to give you peace. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to
1: give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.